Welcome to Mountain Whispers Podcast. I'm Tim Stewart, and this is a show exploring the deeper lessons that we learn from the outdoors. I chat to interesting people within mountain culture about their most vivid transformational experiences, how they got to where they are, lessons on flow, fear, risk and death, everything in between. The aim is to explore how adventure sports and the outdoors help us to find meaning and transformation in a world that is becoming, let's say, increasingly spicy. Today I chat to Belinda Kirk, who's an explorer, author and speaker based in the UK. Belinda has led expeditions across the globe. She set a world record for rowing unsupported around the world and founded a non-profit called Explorers Connect, which connects people around the world who are looking to engage in adventures. That's how I first stumbled upon her work, but more more recently, uh, I stumbled across a book that came out last year called Adventure Revolution, which explores the life-changing power of choosing challenge outdoors. As soon as I stumbled across the book, I knew I had to read it. As soon as I read it, I knew I had to, to get Belinda on, and I'm so glad I got to have this conversation. We talk about her experiences leading adventure with youth, both how adventure helps us expose the limitations that we impose on ourselves and also provide a way to overcome those limitations. And we also chat about the mental health crisis and how much it's present on these trips and also become more prevalent in the last 10 years. We explore the science of the healthy stresses from the outdoors that Belinda really goes deep on in her book. Uh, how being too hot or too cold or a little bit tired actually trains the immune system like muscle versus how modern society and device dependency are actually hijacking our nervous system to introduce a new baseline of tired, wired and stressed and and never really able to to, to, to turn off in that uh, fight or flight mode. Whereas the outdoors provide provides the respite, that way to turn off. And then finally we, we, we go deep on uh, Belinda's call to adventures and experience. Uh, both the magic of the adventures and what makes her, her feel most alive, but also her, how her relationship with fear has, has changed over time uh, with the, the, the birth of her, her son um, and how a healthy relationship uh, with fear allows her to perform at her best. Um, Belinda will casually drop stories like almost being kidnapped in Africa, among others. She's truly led a, a life of adventure. Um, and so I think you really enjoy this conversation. Without th- further ado, here is Belinda Kirk. So I'm here with Belinda Kirk. Belinda, welcome to Mountain Whispers. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me here. No problem. <laughs> it, uh, my entire life is, is virtual. Now, I, I, uh, I work remote and it's, uh, it is wild that it's, I'm almost more comfortable looking at people on a screen nowadays than, than in real life. It's kind of weird. Uh, I think post-COVID, that might be most of us. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> but good to change it, though. Yeah, for sure. Well, well, Belinda, you, you've written an incredible book 
called the Adventure Revolution uh, and, and had a, a very adventurous life, which I'm very excited to dive into. Um, how has the, the month since released, the, the book released in August, how, how has the month since then been? Um, like any adventure, they've been nerve-wracking and terrifying, but mostly exciting. Um, I've had, I mean, the, for me, the absolute best thing that's come out of the book is I've had amazing emails from people um, and experiences of people who've, who've read the book and have gone, you know, this has meant something to me. This has helped me in some way. This guy, this, this lovely guy, my, probably my favourite one, this lovely guy drove all the way across Britain from, um, um, I think he was in Cheltenham and he drove up to Kendall. So that's, I don't know, um, I should know the distance, but it's, it's a good five hours drive probably. Um, and he drove all that way to meet me because I was giving a talk up in Kendall. And he drove all that way because he said, when your book came out, I got it straight away and I read it. And then I gave it to my daughter who's been having, struggling, struggling with life. And she was dropping out of university uh, as well as because of this. And she basically, the, she, he said, I'm not being very succinct, am I? She, he said, this book has changed her life. You have changed somebody's life. Um, and it's wonderful. And she's gone back to university She's got, you know, she, it, she's used reading the book to go on adventures with her dad and with others now. And that's kind of put her back on this path to where, you know, to where she wants to go and where she wants to be. And that that was amazing that he came all that way just to tell me that because he didn't want to drop me an email. He wanted to tell me that. And I was just we were in tears. We were hugging. I mean, it was it was really nice. Um and that was a wonderful, ex I mean, that was an amazing thing. But I've had lots of amazing emails as well like that of people all, all over the world who've read the book and it's resonated with them. It's meant something. It's either explained to them something that's happened to them that's been important and they've never been able to quite put their finger on why, because that's why I wrote the book. <laughs> it was that for me. Or it was people who have been able to change their behaviours, their patterns, the routines and the book has given them a new doorway to go through, a new option, a new idea as to how to um, improve their everyday life by by looking at um, adventure differently and, and making sure to make time for it. So there's been I've got a really long answer that for that. Sorry, Tim. But yeah, mostly it's been the responses from people who've read it and it's really meant something to them personally that has been wonderful, but also exciting things from organizations and other researchers you know amazing professors from all over the place going oh this is helping with my research or we're including this into our course or we're reading this at our secondary school um that all it's just amazing i mean the power of words i had no real idea i've never written a book before but you know to think of all these people i've never met reading my book and it meaning something is i don't know it's a privilege really pretty cool <laughs> yeah i mean that's the 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 same it's the same calling that uh that i started this podcast on of, of recognizing there's something deeply transformational about adventure and 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 wanting to to go deeper and you you articulate it really really well in fact let me read a, a, a just a quick uh couple of sentences on here that that stuck out to me you said the power of adventure to expose the self-imposed limitations we set ourselves and reveal that you can always do more than you thought when faced with challenges. 
that power was contagious to those watching our televised adventure. And uh, do you want to share a little bit more about um, what what that televised adventure you're referring to in, in Nicaragua was? Yes. Yeah, so um, that's the first chapter of the book. Um, I wanted to start. I, I wanted to start the book on a big, big adventure, a big, you know, exciting overseas wowie expedition. Although the book is also very much about the power of small adventures, you don't have to go on a massive expedition to um, experience the benefits of adventure, um, which does make it a bit more accessible, which is really important. But that expedition was, gosh, uh, I can't remember now, six, uh, 16 years ago or something for me. And um, we were, I was invited to join an expedition to uh, cross Nicaragua. Um, to support a team of people with disabilities um, and so it was 12 people with all sorts of different physical disabilities um, and absolutely no expedition experience whatsoever importantly and we weren't there to to to, to push the wheelchairs or to help to help them do their expedition we were there to support and advise it was their expedition and we were there literally to kind of be safety advisors and um uh, and, and help them along the way but it but they were doing all the hard work and it was called beyond boundaries it became a tv series um on uh, on the bbc in, in britain um and actually do you know what? it went international in the end actually as well i think but what we were trying to do was walk across nicaragua from coast to coast with this team of people who had zero experience and had no hadn't experienced the power of adventure at all before <laughs> and which was why it was so incredibly wonderful and powerful um but also because they had um they all had physical disabilities and that made it i think for people watching it made it even more powerful the idea that there's no excuses if if lorraine who works in the accounts department with one leg can walk across nicaragua then what excuses have I got not to go and do something, you know, something equally as exciting or something smaller? Um, you don't have to start there. Um, so the expedition was um, was about break this. It was called Beyond Boundaries because it was about breaking our expectations of, of our, the boundaries that we set ourselves, really, I think. And inspiring the people with, with on the expedition were inspired. We expected that. But what I hadn't expected was the incredible reaction from the audience um it was we had bucket loads of letters and stuff coming in because people could people's um experience of just watching this unfold on the screens and blowing their minds really of what's possible um it makes you completely change your attitude to what you're capable of and also what the world is capable of. It's a bit like the moon landings or, or something, you know. It's kind of like, wow, we, we're, we're capable, as, as a human race, we're capable of so much. And I, as an individual, am capable of so much more than I maybe allow myself to think that I am I'm capable of. And I think this is, so this, this show, this expedition, um, had extra layers of um, inspiration because it was um, both in reality and also on on the telly. But uh, but it, it's a it's an example of all adventures or many many adventures that I've been involved with 
one of the key elements that you get from taking on challenges that are maybe bigger than you think you can do is that you find out that you're capable of more than you think. And that is probably one of the most wonderful gifts you can you can ever get in life or you can ever give to someone, um, you know, to your children or your friends or whoever you're taking on an adventure or that you can give to yourself by, by pushing yourself to go and try something that you think you might fail at. Um, I think we're, we're very, it's very easy to think of failure as this really terrible thing and therefore avoid it at all costs. But if you spend your life avoiding failure, what you're actually doing is not giving yourself your, a chance to really find out what you're capable of. And adventure is the most perfect place that you can do that. Um, the most, most natural ex, um, activity that you can take on where you can find out, you can dare to fail, you can try something you think is much harder than you can actually do. Um, and if you actually do it, or even if you just get halfway, you'll realize you can do more than you think you can do. Um, so adventure is a great vehicle for that. Mm-hmm. No, Abby, you, 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 you explained it, it perfectly in, in, in the way that it can I- expose and allow us to expand the, uh, our self-imposed limitations. It's a testing ground that allows us to see what we're, we're capable of. Um, and, and you've been doing this for, I, I think your website says 26 years, um, but it, it had to start somewhere. What, what was your call to adventure or, or your, your first experience in seeing how adventure can, can, can help you see a glint of your, your potential? I think when I was a kid, I was really lucky. I didn't obviously realize how I, it made me happy. That was, that was all I knew at the time. I loved going out out on my bike, climbing trees, building dens. I loved the freedom that I had. I grew up on an island for a few years and I had real freedom there. Then we went back to the city and I lost that freedom. And I maybe didn't realize and obviously didn't analyze it because I was like eight, nine, 10 years old. But there was this incredible joy that I got and this freedom. And it must have, I think, laid down something in my head that I wanted to be an explorer. Probably the first time I really was aware of it though, that adventure was actually good for me, was when I went on a Duke of Edinburgh award expedition when I was 16, I think. Um, and I, they have Duke of Edinburgh award um, in Britain I, and they have, it, they have it in Australia. Do they have it in New Zealand? In some schools in New Zealand, they have it. I'm not sure yeah. if they have it in Canada. They probably don't. So it's kind of a, um, it's a bit like Outward Bound, which is a bit, a bit more international now. It's, um, it involves, one of the elements of it is this, ex, this idea of going on a little micro expedition in your own country, camping for a few nights with, with no adult supervision. That's the point of it. You know, you're like 15, 16, and you're out there with some of your friends and you have to just get on with it. And I went on this first one, and um, I, I had, I'd had, I'd experienced some problems in my in my later part of my childhood, where I was, um, I had suffered from abuse basically from violence, and I, I this had completely destroyed my self confidence, and also teenage years. I mean, 
teenage being a teenage girl is not easy <laughs> so the together I was really I had very little self-confidence and I went on this adventure and I just thought wow a light came on something something clicked I was like I can do this I walked to the top of a hill or mountain <laughs> I had it in my head um, you know I we scaled this mountain we stayed out in tents on our own we did this on our own I mean it was extremely empowering and I, it changed me and I and I knew it at the time that I'd found something something that I couldn't let go of and I needed this because if I wanted to feel like this you know and it gave me hope and of course, at that time, I wasn't, I didn't analyze it, but sometimes we overanalyze these things anyway. But I just knew that this was like good for me. I, I needed this. Um, and so I just started pursuing adventures. You know, I, I, I did some more camping adventures in Britain and, and it led me eventually when I was 18, I went off to Africa. But it was that, that turning point was that Duke of Edinburgh award expedition when I was 15 or 16. And it was really, it just, gave me someone who had very little self-esteem it gave me a different view of myself that I'd not had and that was enormous and I've seen that in young people since because if you've only ever had one view of yourself that you're worthless you're not up to much you're not good enough you're too this you're too you're not popular enough you're too fat you're too ugly, you're not, you're not clever enough, whatever, you're not good enough at sports. If you've just had one kind, because our society only measures us in certain ways. And if you're not up to that box, you're not up, if you're not up on that, you know, um, if you're not doing well in all those ways that, that we, we think of people as being worth while or whatever. Plus the, the violence had also obviously skewed my, my, um, my view of myself. If you've never seen yourself in any other way but that way, and then you're suddenly given a whole different way of looking at yourself, it is enormous. And I think that's why I love youth development expeditions and charities that do outdoor stuff, because it's, it's often the kids who are having the biggest problems that get the most out of those sorts of experiences. And, and that through my research, that's what I've heard a lot as well. Mm. So, yeah, huge. Yeah. Let's talk about youth development a little bit more because I, I, I see it as being incredibly powerful um, because in that key time of, of one's development. Um, I, I'm curious if um, in your book, you, you talk about um, the, the adventure of revolution is, is more important than ever because of how removed youth are becoming from, from nature. Have you seen that shift in, the, in the, the time that you've been leading expeditions? as oh, youth has been, been more, what, what does that look like on an expedition level? Just on a, <clears throat> on a pure expedition level. And let's put it this way. When I took young people on expeditions, um, when I was only just a bit older than them, this was 20 years ago, whatever. Um, I, you, you did um, preparations for medical first aid, <clears throat> You did um, training for, you know, jungle training and so on. No one would ever have considered mental health first aid. No one would ever have considered talking about have people within the group, have the young people within the group got um, mental health problems 
um, that they're dealing with that we we've got to help manage during the trip. Whereas now, um, all the youth development expedition leaders that I know, they expect um, on a trip of you know of young people, they expect either eating disorders, anxiety problems, depression, um, people on antidepressant pills, so they've got to manage that and make sure you know, they expect more than they expect multiple mental health um situations that they're going to have to manage on the expedition so there is a there is a there is a complete change in um i mean this sorry was that the question I mean, no it is that is exactly where yeah, we want to go it's yeah. like a mental health crisis and and also all the statistics you look at i mean i was just reading something about anxiety in kids because i run this conference around adventure and and well-being and one of my speakers who's amazing amazing professor helen dodd amazing work that she does on adventure adventurous play and anxiety in children and the effect of adventurous play and how it can really help anxiety levels in, in children <clears throat> her her opening kind of statistics she came she told me just yesterday was i can't remember it now 40 I think it's a 49% increase in anxiety problems within children over the last, and that's the bit I can't remember what, I think it was over two decades or something, or maybe it was less, 2007 till now. What's that, 15 years? Pretty sure it's 2007 till now. A 49% increase in anxiety issues amongst five to 15 year olds. That's terrifying yeah um and so of course you see that on expeditions but you also i think see that they're more important than ever because we have this problem <laughs> in the west yeah and and do they in those studies do they um do they point towards technology as one of the the, the driving causes or what are the the main causes do they uh are, are there the hypothesis for for what's causing the increase in Good question. I think it depends who you ask. Obviously, social media and, and, and so on is always quoted. Um, and if you look at how social, there's an amazing graph. Um, it's not just social media, but yeah, there's an amazing graph. Um, it's the most damning thing against iPhones or, or hand, um, smartphones you've ever seen. And I think along the bottom is a timeline and um, a, along the along the the the, the, uh, the side is um what is it is it um anxiety depression i can't remember what it was maybe depression levels and the the curve goes it goes exactly mirror image in line with the introduction of smartphones and the proliferation of smartphones within our communities and so the the levels of depression and the levels of um, um, smartphone use are directly in line with each other. So there's no, and also let's face it, we all know social media is bad for people. So it is like, that is a huge part. And not just social media, but this whole being on all the time, having a smartphone constantly, you know, if you're getting bullied at school, you used to be able to go home, at least have a, have a, a time to you know a break from it um now people can just whatsapp you and message you and i mean the whole thing can you know there's nasty comments online and stuff the whole thing just never stops 
So there's all sorts of, I mean, that's a huge, that's a huge um, issue in itself. But also there is a lot of evidence that um, being in nature and being outside is incredibly good for us. So there's, and therefore not being outside and not being in nature is surely harming us. You know, not just obesity and physically, you know, and, and um, you know, lack of, um, um, uh, what is it? There's other things like um, eyesight, you know, myopia and stuff. There's not just the physical problems, but there's the mental problems um, associated with not being outside. But I, what I think is the missing part of that is also adventuring. We've wrapped our kids up and, and therefore we've become very risk averse as young adults and, and, and onwards now. You know, we're a very risk averse society. We've prioritised the, the um, we've prioritised our physical health over our mental health. Whereas actually what we should be doing is we should be balancing, you know, our physical and our mental health are both important. We, if we prioritise just our physical health and wrap us up, wrap, you know, wrap our kids up in cotton wool and never take, you know, never take, um, take responsibility or, 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 or do stuff that, um, uh, because we're always worried of, you know, worried about getting hurt or something. Um, then we'll, we never build resilience. We never build coping mechanisms. We never build any of those things. So yeah, I think, yeah, so why have we come like that? That's a really complicated question, but I think there's lots of elements like that. Social media, the lack of being outside in nature, and also this, this idea of the lack of adventuring, the lack of taking responsibility for ourselves, um, which are all, they're all very interconnected with nature because nature is a, and is an environment that is completely uncontrollable. And yeah, that's part of its beauty. <laughs> yeah, the, what comes up as you you share that is um, it, it is thinking of like the the, the human nervous system um, for for ninety nine point nine percent of our, our our existence has been immersed in nature. One with nature, there hasn't uh, there hasn't been a separation between an individual and nature. And the, the amount of change that, that I mean that has happened in the last 300 years, let alone the last 20 years, um, is has just really um, changed faster than uh, humans' nervous system can can adapt for. And I um, I've heard um, social media described as um, uh, what was the term hijacking the is it the 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 lower hijacking the brain. And and uh, hijacking the brainstem in that it's it's appealing to the the, the fight and flight mechanism at, at our lower senses, lower than our um, like our our, our 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 rational thoughts can actually keep up with, and and these um, and, and the reality is that the amount of time we're connected to the internet, and to information, and, and to social media, um, our nervous system is always on alert there's it's it's not like where you're um where naturally your your nervous system is like a muscle where it's stimulated and then in recovery mode uh, it's it's always being stressed and and that's what's what's leading to these these mental health issues yeah no I, that's so true this idea of chronic um stress because stress is actually good for you as well as but it can be good or bad so I, one of my sort of theories 
there is evidence for this, but it's, it's still a theory, I would say, in my book that I kind of, that kind of um, is, I think, a key part of it, is that if you think of, a, think of how we evolved as hunter-gatherers and this idea of evolutionary mismatch, which you've mentioned, absolutely, we evolved to be stimulated by very varied and very um, um, immediate um, threats. So you'd run away from a, um, I don't know, <laughs> um, you know, you run away from a wild animal or you'd, you'd um, uh, swim across a river or you'd, whatever it is, you know, and then you'd, you'd have this period of stress. But you'd also immediately afterwards have this period of relief and joy and which you get from adventures, don't you? Because we, we do experience, <laughs> our, our brains still work the same. So this idea of this, um, if you think of a, if you think of the um, this wonderful undulating sine wave of stress and relief, stress and relief, and and living, you know, that's about living. Or you think of this chronic, medium kind of level stress, and that's this chronic stress is the stuff that kills us. Chronic stress levels, chronic levels of cortisol and those sorts of stress hormones in our body are directly linked by dozens of studies to obesity, ADHD, um, depression, heart disease. I mean, goodness knows what, you know, loads and loads of evidence. So, yes, I think if you think of modern life as this flatlining of just chronic, turned on all the time, stress. Because it is stress. You're basically under stress with these notifications going off. You're like, oh, 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 you know, I've got, you know, the number of times I see, and everyone does this, but it's like, oh, I've got a reply to that WhatsApp. No, you don't. You don't have to reply. You don't. Why are we expected to be on all the time? I don't reply to, I'm terrible. People think that I'm being rude. It's not. I just, I don't see, I don't, I don't think we have to be on all the time. Um, and so, yeah, this this difference between this kind of this chronic level of stress and this constant um, and much more natural um, way of living, which is kind of peaks and troughs, peaks and troughs, you know, that's how our brain evolved to be in a playful state, in a in a varying, challenging state, not in a kind of monotonous, stressful, permanently on state. And I think there's definitely there's some really interesting neuroscience around that, which I do go into that in the book. But there is more that needs to be explained. Yeah. There's more research. And the other uh, in, in a similar vein um, in, that you talk about in the book is uh, the, the health benefits of, of stresses like cold dips or, or, or soreness and that our uh, our nervous system is is designed to be work like a, a muscle is how I interpret that. And and um, the other thing that comes up um when you talk about the the sine wave of, of adventure and peaks and troughs is um, if you take a, a backpacking trip, yes, it's often hard work, but um, when you get to camp, it, it's often a lot more relaxed than when you'd be at home in terms of stimulants, but also the, the environment that you're in. That's a, a perfect example of the, those peaks and troughs. I totally, totally yeah. agree. It's, that, it's much more natural, isn't it? It's, mm -hmm. it's nature and adventure working at one, I think. Mm -hmm. And exercise—it's it's all of those things all together. The other thing I wanted to, to go on that you, you mentioned earlier is it, it's not just the, the physical stresses, but you talked about um, uh, the 
our um, the health benefits of, of taking risks and how that's something that um, uh, is has has waned in, in, in recent times as as um, children have been wrapped in in cotton wool. Um, I don't know. You, you've got a, a four year old. Do you uh, can you share a little bit about your mentality to um, to risk for for your four year old? You use the word risk and everyone sort of, <clears throat> a lot of people go, oh, God, you know, how, what do you mean risk? Why would you put your child in risk into, you know, into a situation of risk? It's more, it's more that I think that there's just this balance between um, mental health and physical health. And the balance has gone off the wrong, it's, it's, it's imbalanced in our, in our current society. Um, if you, there's a lot of evidence now that if you, if you take all the risks out of the environment of young people, they don't learn how to, there's two things that happen. A, they don't learn how to manage risks themselves. So later on, when they're let out into the real world, they're more dangerous. They are less, you know, they're less protected because they don't know how to manage risks. The other interesting thing, um, there's some other really interesting research, um, they actually brought risks back in to several schools purposefully. You know, they've kind of, because over the years, we've kind of risked assessed our schools, particularly our school, but anything probably for young people, um, any environments for young people, we've, we've risked assessed all of the dangers out. So, um, because obviously we want to protect them and it completely makes sense. But actually we've done it so far that um, it's actually affecting their, their mental well-being and so when you reintroduced at different schools one amazing study was in new zealand another one that i include in the book is is in britain but also there's amazing stuff in america junk playgrounds junkyard playgrounds and stuff like that but if you reintroduce risk to these environments young um, children are actually um, happier there's less bullying, there's um, more engagement, so they feel more relaxed and they can learn better when they come back into the classroom if they're, say, at schools. They have less injuries, believe it or not, because if you if you de try to de-risk everything, they will try to find ways to be riskier. <laughs> um, so you're, it's really odd because it feels back to front, but if you actually give kids some risk, they are actually even, in some ways, at the time safer but they're definitely safer in the future because they know how to deal with the risk. So you've got that just pure logical science, but also, you know, life's about living and I want my son to have wonderful experiences. And if you try, uh, I want to do lovely stuff with him, you know, and I want him to um, grow confidence and autonomy. And for that, he has, to, you know, uh, he has to do it himself a bit. His favorite phrase I think this possibly for all four-year-olds is I can I want to do it on my own I want to do it myself you know he's constantly I want to do that myself they want to you know they want to grow up kids want to grow up um so we've got to let them do that but obviously safe yeah we want to I mean my overwhelming feeling around my son is to protect him but my second logical feeling after that is actually I've got to prepare him as well got to prepare him for the world and for fulfilled life so again we've got to find balance mm. yeah protect versus prepare the 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 uh the parallel i just drew as you said that is is um 
it, there's almost like a delayed gratification element to that and that there's there's an, an intuition that uh if uh preparing uh, a, a child for making better decisions around risk is, is is a way to prepare them but um in the short term that's scary and um uh, and i guess goes uh, against social convention right now or or a, a yeah a tide of social norms almost I think only because we've become so ridiculously over cotton wooling. I think there's always a conflict because in your heart of hearts, you want to protect your children, but also you want to see them grow up and have a good life. So, and you, and if you, if you understand that you, you, you can't just cotton wool them and then release them at, at age 16 and they're just going to be fully formed adults. So they're from, from a baby to from like a child who has no responsibility for themselves to a fully formed adult who has complete responsibility for themselves. There's got to be a bridge. Uh, I, on a closely related to, um, to, to risk is uh, recognition and, and um, management of fear. Um, I'm curious on, on your, uh, on, on an individual level, I mean, you, you've you've led expeditions and 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 worked in, in wild settings around the world. Um, how has how has uh, fear been present in, in, in what you do? Um, gosh, so much to say about that. I don't know where to begin. I just talked about my son. My my risk. We're talking about fear. I'm. My risk profile now is completely different to what it was before I had a boy. Like I, I think of some of the expeditions I've done and there would be no way on earth I would do them at the moment until my son is like a teenager. Because, um, and I've, this, I've, I've talked to other climbers and all sorts of expeditionary people, men and women, you get, you have kids and then you don't want to not be around for them you, you know you've almost got more responsibility to them than you did for your own safety um the, the the equation is different because it's not just your mental health versus your physical health it's their it's their it's their it's their development versus your yours i don't know i'm going off the point a bit but yeah um so i yeah some of the stuff i've done where where i think of fear i mean gosh i wouldn't do it now and I won't do it until he's older. Um, but fear has been, an, I mean, I've had a, it's been a developing relationship with fear. Um, I think if I was really honest, when I was um, 18, 19 and traveling around Africa and going on some of my first big adventures overseas, I mean, I was reckless. Um, and I think there is, I mean, there's a lot of evidence that, um, teenage brains are are different to kids and to adults and actually sadly we have our greatest um i think i think the mortality rates for teenagers are higher than for children and for adults or something like that i can't remember what the statistic there was some really interesting statistic it's it, you have some pretty pretty scary mortality rates when you're a teenager because Teenagers have this appetite for risk. It, the way your brain is um, developing at that time of that early adulthood, you're looking for risk. 
And that's actually why adventure is so good then, because you can do sensible adventure that is can be perceived as much more dangerous than it really is, you know, rather than robbing stuff, driving cars, really nicking cars and driving them too fast or taking drugs or other stuff that's mostly just harmful. Um, adventure has a lot more positive effects. So it's, it's why adventure is so good at that age. But for me, for fear, sorry, I've got off point again, but fear, <laughs> fear, I wasn't, I was just stupid, really. It wasn't a lack of um, fear. It wasn't being brave anyway. It was a real stupidness <laughs> um, and recklessness. And so I did stuff in my, when I was 18, 19, 20, 21. I mean, it was bloody ridiculous, really. It was terrifying if I was thinking about it now. And I got away with stuff. Um, and because I did it, I have to admit, it was an incredible learning process. And, and there was a lot of benefits coming out the back of it. But I wouldn't suggest that's what we need from our teenagers. And that's not what I suggest is the best way. But I'm just acknowledging that there was a lot of benefits out there. But my, my, my relationship with fear then was that I would just kind of push it to the back of my head and I'd just kind of, I wasn't really engaging with it because I was a bit too dumb, young, dumb. <laughs> then I think as you get older, you, 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 um, I mean, you lose friends. Um, I was working as a diver in the Red Sea and I was doing a lot of deep dives, really reckless, to be fair, some of it. Um, deep diving on air which is very dangerous and not really necessary um, it's because of the like the site of going back up is, is where the danger is is it or yeah, what are the other elements yeah. of risk you can you're a higher risk of bends when you go up but also oxygen becomes toxic after i think 60 meters and i'm a bit, a bit um lucky uh, on this now i used to work as a diver but i'm a bit <laughs> it's been a while um so oxygen becomes toxic um um, and obviously the partial pressure of oxygen when you're going down at great depth um, in, in a, your partial pressure of oxygen in your air tank becomes um, much greater the deeper you go. So um, there's things like oxygen toxicity, but there's also yeah, much more nitrogen narcosis. So you get more and more drunk feeling um, the deeper you go on air, but also you've got much greater risk of the bends when you come up. So several reasons. It, it's just not it's not really necessary. That's the thing. So I was taking, anyway, in my early 20s, I was doing some really deep diving and I lost two friends, um, Martin and Connor, beautiful Irish guys, 23 and 22 years old. I all I think about them still, you know, um, I mean, not every day, but I, I, there's certain songs come on the radio or something. And I think about them and their their death had a huge impact on me of like, wow, I'm not, because I think when you're 21, you think you're unbreakable, almost. And, and so things happen like that. Um, you get injured, friends of yours get injured, you lose friends along the way, and you start to realize that um, you start to become more fearful. Life makes you fearful as you live. Things, I mean, let's face it, there's a lot of bad stuff in the world. You become more fearful. I, I nearly got kidnapped in Africa. That scared the hell out of me, and I think, it changed the way I behaved traveling on my own after that. I, I had different, I, I did things differently after that. And um, so stuff 
happens and you're fearful, that's because it's sensible information. That's good. Um, but if you go, as you get older, you can become more and more and more fearful and you can find yourself, um, I don't know, you can find yourself holding yourself back. Um, and there's nothing quite like, of course, the fear of social failure or, you know, or uh, it's not just the fear physically that you have. It's the fear of um, looking foolish or making mistakes. And that fear of failure is a big one. So, I mean, fear's a lot, fear covers a lot of stuff. I think over the years, I, 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 and also because I love finding out how things work, um, I did a lot more. Um, I used to just put fear to one side. What, what I used to, for a long, long time, I used to be really good on expeditions or, or difficult situations where, where you know, where other people might be panicking or something. I'm not a panicker. I would be like, right, fear goes to that side. I'm very focused on the situation, the problem, and let's solve it and let's get on it. And then afterwards, I would be absolute wreck. And you know, once everything was resolved, I'd be like, oh. Um, there was a situation. Um, uh, say rowing around Britain actually exactly that um, we nearly got run over with four women in a tiny rowing boat um, very busy shipping lanes around Britain um, this massive Russian tanker nearly ran us down um, in the middle of the night it was utterly terrifying um, but we I wasn't scared at the time I was just focused on getting us out of the situation but afterwards, I was just like, a, I was just, I mean, the what ifs, it was like, we nearly, we nearly died. I mean, there's no question. Um, so I, that was my relationship with fear for decades, I think, of expedition leading. I was really good in high pressure situations because I actually kind of thrived, I thrived on it almost. And then I was thinking about it, thinking, that's interesting because I actually do think I almost thrive off that stuff. Am I? Am I nuts? <laughs> Am I a masochist? Am I a psycho? You know, is there something wrong with me? Should I be almost, it's not enjoyment, but should I feel a, that alive during situations like that? And then I realized that actually fear is a, is a really useful thing. And this is where I am now with fear. Um, fear um, gives us information. Fear, if you think of the flight and fight response, this is hardwired. Everyone knows, hopefully, been doing that at school and stuff. It's hardwired through us. It's evolution. It's part of our DNA. You have a fight or flight response. So when you feel fear, it's because you've perceived some sort of threat in the environment. And that could be the threat of getting up on stage and giving a public talk and, and getting it all wrong and looking like an idiot. Or it could be the fear of a, a lion coming and running at you or whatever, or going off a cliff. First, you know, abseiling off cliff, whatever. The fear is is there. The, the feeling of fear is real. Um, your body goes into this hijacked sort of position, whereby there's all these stress um, hormones flooding your body, makes you on high alert. And what it actually does, though, is it it gets you ready to deal with the situation. So fear is actually, um, you hear of people becoming super strong and stuff. Um, do you know what I mean? When, when there's um, terrible situations happen, you hear about people pulling cars off other people to save them and stuff, but that's not possible, you know. Um, so you do, I'm not, some of it's, you wonder some of these stories, but it, there's a lot of truth to it because actually 
what happens is you shut down your digestive system, you shut down all that sort of unimportant stuff at the time. Blood goes straight, you know, as soon as you feel fear, blood goes to your muscles, you become super strong. It also goes to your senses. All your senses are, are super acute. You can see and hear better than ever. So it's almost like having superpowers. So you're super strong. You've got these superpowers in your super senses. And so I now see fear as my superpower. And fear allows me to perform to my max, to my best. So when I feel, I, I do public speaking now, and I have to admit, I never ever feel comfortable about it. But what I've realized is that it's good that I'm scared because it helps me perform better than if I was just lackadaisically getting on stage, like, yeah, whatever. Then if I got used to it, I don't think I'd be as good because that fear prepares me. It makes my engaged brains no longer in neutral, brain is engaged and um, all my super senses have hit and I can now get up on stage and do a good job just as if you're in a situation that's scary on an adventure exhibition or something. Yeah, I've heard. Is good. Yeah, I've heard um, uh, some research that uh, if you simply, when it comes to public speaking, when you, if you simply change the narrative around nervousness to rather than I'm nervous because I don't want to do this to I'm nervous because I really want to perform, that can can change from the the freeze mode to the, the like the flight fight or flight like mode of, of actually preparing you rather than freezing that the other yeah, thing I, I i wanted to to uh quickly share about the, the story of um of super strength is i, I met a a woman who um she was hiking with her son uh they're traversing a, a boulder field where there's a lot of loose rocks and um her uh, a rock slip and and crushed her son's uh um or wedged her son's leg uh, amongst two boulders and um she was able to 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 move the boulder um but the next day uh she'd ruptured a number of um uh a number of she'd torn a number of muscles and or, or, or tendons in her arm and um the narrative that i got from that is is that it wasn't just that blood moved away from the digestive system into to her muscles. It was also that um, part of the brain is stopping you exercising so much strength because you're going to actually tear those muscles. There's like a, a self-limiting function there. And in this case where it was an emergency, her brain was able to turn off the self-limiting function and sacrifice her own muscles in order to move that boulder. Oh, that's brilliant. Yeah, That goes in line with that. Um, there's, that, uh, there's a Russian there's a Russian researcher who's published something very similar. He did research on weightlifters and weightlifters it goes for all sports though. You, you don't see world records getting broken in the gym or on the racetrack when you're just practicing. You see them at the, at, at the Olympics or at the world you know the world sort of anywhere that's on the world stage. Because that extra bit of fear, adrenaline, whatever, pushes the performance to that extra level. Just sort of very similarly, um, very similar, um, I think it's all very similar psychology or physiology. The idea that that extra pressure um, makes us find that extra 10% or whatever. Yeah. It, actually, I, the, uh, I had experience of that uh, when I was in... Uh, when I was 20, I, I, I uh, competed in track and field for university. And I, and I remember always um, 
being perplexed or frustrated by uh, the, 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 the fact that you suddenly get a burst of energy on the last lap and you sometimes feel like you actually had more in the tank than you, than you thought you did. And it was a 5,000 meter race. It was 12 and a half laps. And I said, okay, I'm going to treat two laps to go as if it's one lap to go. And, and I, and I went out as hard as I could with two laps to go. And uh, I was actually, I was actually in the bronze medal spot, but I, I collapsed with 50 meters to go in the home straight. Um, and I, and what I imagine, I mean, I think I did have a cold. There was maybe some other things going on, but I, I felt like I had actually, uh, overridden that, that system, but it, I just didn't quite get it right. I just overcooked myself by 50 oh. meters or so. Uh, oh, wow. That's yeah. <laughs> mm. Oh, it's amazing. The human body, isn't it? Um, I, I'm not sure. Uh, I, so the, the other thing that came up when you were sharing the, the story, um, about um the uh the moment when you were rowing it at, at, at night when there was a uh uh the ship passing um is that it's and, and you said it perfectly that, that fear is your superpower because um some people do freeze in those situations um has it always been like that where you've been able able to perform your best in those high stakes moments or is that something that's that's come with training and experience i don't know for sure i i think though i think adventures taught me to it's like practice if you practice anything you get better at it and i think adventure is a whole lot of situations like that um, and if you if you throw yourself into those situations regularly, you practice, and then you realise, well, it's better to do something. <laughs> I always reckon it's better. Um, it's better to crack on and react. I think the the lack, definitely the lack of panicking, is because of experience. So, being in difficult situations in nature, in natural challenges, I mean, simply having done that lots of times means that. Um, and done it from a young age it's kind of uh, it's kind of hardwired I don't um, I'm trying to think when I panicked on something else though I think I'm more likely to panic if it was something around my son and something that I just didn't know about I don't know then I, I'm not saying I could never panic <laughs> but if on a natural challenge on an adventure I've just done that's what I've done that's what I'm comfortable with so um, yeah but I think, I, I mean, the great, the great thing about adventure is what you learn doing adventures you take to every part of your life. So I think it's definitely prepared me not to. Um, and also confidence is part of that, isn't it? I think freezing, if, if, if you've got, if you've built some confidence, that stops you from just doing nothing or waiting for someone else to do something. Um, and confidence is built through adventuring, or it has been a huge part of it for me. So, yeah, I don't know. Mm. Never say never. Hopefully not. <laughs> <laughs> and and speaking of your your adventures, uh, it was spoken about panic and, and high risk situations. Um, but but something we shared right before we we started recording was uh, the, the power of adventure to to make you feel most alive. Um, could you tell us a story about our an expedition where you where it was one of the moments where you felt felt most alive? I mean, I, what I'll do is I'll, I'll hark back to that first one we talked about, climbing that volcano, just because it's most fresh in my head. I mean, in Nicaragua, right? Yeah, so we talked yeah. about walking across Nicaragua, and one element of that was 
climbing this volcano in the middle. And it was a really, a really difficult, <laughs> it was a really difficult day. Um, it was an, an awe-inspiring and emotional day for many, many reasons. But it's one of those moments where I, I, think, I think about feeling alive on adventures and I think of magic because I think if you stay in your comfort zone if you do the stuff we do every day even if we have a great life and we've built a really good life um it's stepping outside of our normal lives and doing something different every now and then whether it be every weekend or every once a year or whatever it is it's doing that completely new challenge um every now and then that you 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 go out of your comfort zone and you it is scary and it is uncomfortable but you get magic and that's what you get paid back so and that's when i felt alive and that's i think what calls me to adventures and the adventure that that we were talking about in nicaragua um this team of people with disabilities we were on this this incredibly challenging day going up this volcano it started at 30 degree slope. Um, we had Ade, who was in a wheelchair, and he was pushing his wheelchair. Other people were hauled. There was a rope system. We were hauling. Um, I mean, it was an incredibly tough climb. Um, then it went from 30 degrees to 45 degrees. It's also jagged volcanic rock, so it's all it's really tough. It's steaming hot. Um, there's hot, there's sulfurous fumes. It, it couldn't be much more unpleasant. And you, it is times like that that you sort of think, why on earth am I here? <laughs> I could be sat at home watching Netflix um, in my pajamas. Why, why am I here? Um, and I've been on lots of expeditions when I thought, why the hell am I here? But usually, within hours or days after that, I'm feeling like, oh, thank God, I'm here. Um, and for this day. We struggled up this volcano. Um, Ade and his friend Carl, this one-legged guy, Carl, who he'd met six weeks earlier, they were struggling in front of me. I was feeling very emotional about how much pain I was putting. I, I, was I wasn't responsible for their pain because they were adults and they'd chosen to be there, but I was like, oh, my goodness, is, was this... Was this the right thing to set them? You know, is this too big a challenge? Are we going to break them and break their spirit? But actually kept going and they found reserves, especially Ade, he found reserves of extraordinary strength. And, um, and also I was climbing this volcano with the safety and the filming team. I was carrying enormous amounts of kit and I was under my, a lot of pressure myself. I was carrying this camera all the way up. Um, that's like the weight of, I don't know, of like a five-year-old child sort of thing. Um, so we were all pushed, but I was also witnessing this struggle and I was feeling, you know, quite, it was all quite emotional. We got to the top and everyone had been through hell and then we got the magic. And as we were sat there, we obviously had the feeling, the extraordinary feelings of achievement of having got to the top, but also at that moment, as if they were there to celebrate the moment with us, this flotilla of yellow butterflies came and surrounded us and swirled around us and landed. I assume they'd come for the salts and stuff, landed on the gray rocks around us. And on our, our, I remember one landed on my arm and we were just like, 
captivated by this otherworldly moment. And these are the moments you think, think if, if you if your life flashes before your eyes on your deathbed, these are the moments that will flash. This is a moment you can't, not only you can't possibly get unless you put yourself out there, but also we'd earned it in every possible way. You can't imagine such moments. These are unimaginable moments that just come to you when you when you push yourself and you, you leave a comfort zone, you go on adventures. And I felt completely alive in that moment and completely bonded with the people with me on top of that volcano. Um, and we were experiencing something magical together. And it's that magic that I search for, I think, when I go on adventures. Um, and it, I'm I, by right, I'm completely slightly going off the topic here. I hope that you're not at all. This is not going on topic at all. <laughs> this is but, bang on. But by writing, by, by writing the book, I think of that experience and that magic. And then by writing the book, I've reminded myself of why not only the magic that I love and I seek, but I've had, I've, I've got a four year old, so I've had four and a half, five years now. Well, yeah, five years now, I haven't been on a really big adventure. And I've been doing lots of really, I've been really good, lots of little adventures, but I need something big. And I was thinking, is it selfish? Should I be trying to do something like that? You know, maybe the small adventures are enough. Um, but it's, I really want to do something magical with my little boy and with my partner and as a family. And I also think that there's, well, there is, there's lots of evidence that it's incredibly bonding for, for relationships to go on adventures together. And so we're going on, on this amazing a family adventure we, we're leaving literally next week um and because of covid we haven't been anywhere as, with him as a young you know I, I haven't been on a big adventure for um for five years which is the biggest break i've had in my whole adult life um and i'm searching for moments like that that we will share together we don't know what they're going to look like because it, they're magic you can't imagine them because they're so good it, but we will probably have, well, we will, we'll have tough times. And we, we might argue and we might have um, um, standoffs with my four-year-old about walking another day. I don't know. But because we are going to endeavour on and try this thing that is bigger than us, I think we're going to have magical moments. And that's going to be, I don't know, that's, that's what life's about. It's about living. It's about feeling alive. So I'm really excited um, about going. Yeah. That was beautifully articulated. And that that there is that uh, that which it is that 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 creates this transformation that makes us feeling most alive, it's probably best defined as a magic, you know? And because there's no uh it's not like there's a strict formula to find it. It is possible to uh to go hike up a mountain and it be great experience a great use of time um but not necessarily tra transformative but but the the mere chance of 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 reaching which i which i also think is like a state of consciousness it's it's like a like this contagious state of consciousness that that like affects the entire party when you get to that um um just the mere chance of 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 reaching that is um is what always makes it worthwhile Oh, completely. And I think it can be explained by things like flow or peak experiences or, I mean, or mindfulness. Um, I think it's a, I think it's a whole combination of things. 
but it yeah. is about living, feeling alive. And in writing my book, and also in the research that I did before, I even knew it would be a book, in just when I was just trying to find out and explain this to myself, I just wanted to understand for myself, why is adventure so good for us? And why don't we recognize it as that? Everyone I interviewed, eventually I realized everyone was mentioning the word, the phrase feeling alive or feeling most alive. I think that's a key, it's a key part. That magic is a key part of, uh, of adventure and why it's so good for us. You can never have too much of feeling alive. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, Belinda, we've covered a lot in this conversation. We've covered the, the adventures you've gone into, the, the, the transformative power of uh, adventure and youth and why it's so uh, important to this time. Uh, in, in, in history and, and um, how, how fear and, and risk can go into that. Um, I'm curious if there's any other uh, elements of adventure uh, you feel called to share or any other deeper lessons you've learned from adventure or the outdoors that, uh, that you'd like to share. Oh, gosh. I mean, there's loads, I suppose. I, I mean, just to give you one answer... <laughs> help them bang on for ages I, I think what I've over time and I've realized that there's a me I mean like living life a fulfilling life is all about finding meaning and I can't help but be impressed that I keep meeting people who have adventures help them and then they want to pass it on and so I think there's meaning to be found in adventuring um, I, I, I talk about it in the book, but I, and, and there's several ways to look at it. But I think the very fact that adventure becomes a calling for people and they want to make it their more than just their hobby, and so many people want to make it their job, is because it's not it's not about having fun. It, it's so much more than that. It's about um, it's meaningful. There's a great meaning to having adventures and to taking people on adventures, um, and I love. I love going on adventures, but I absolutely love taking other people on adventures. It's um, something I always find time to do, whether it's my son or whether it's um, other people. I, I hope for a bit of bit of both. Um, I think there's something, um, there's just something completely worthwhile, but not not worthy. It's not it's not boring or worth, not that being worthy is boring. It's not. It's. Um, there's no downside. It's just, yeah, it's just good. It's just a good mm. way to spend your time. Good way to spend your life. Absolutely. Cool. Well, Belinda, where can, can people listening find more of you? Sorry, what was the question? Where can people listening find more of you? Did you say that your, your book's out on hardcover? It's also releasing on, on paperback soon? Yes. Yeah, so the book is available um, as an ebook. As a, um, you can also listen to it on Audible. And you can obviously get the book um, itself, um, old old style, <laughs> old style actual book. I love real books, um, but yeah, you can you can listen to it um, and everything else. So you can you can read about it there. Um, I run an adventure conference, which is about which is which is further exploring this link between adventure and well-being, and how we can get adventure into our lives more personally, but also through social prescribing, through urban planning, through you know there's so many ways that we can get adventure that we should be putting adventure into our societies um i i um, have a website belinda kirk.com i do a bit of social media 
Um, I'm not a massive fan of social media, so I don't do loads, so I won't bombard you. But there's um, the odd bit on social media. Um, I'm Explorer Belinda. And also you can join um, the newsletter list for Explorers Connect. And, and that is always, it's free to join. And uh, we send out a few um, newsletters every year with lots of cool adventure opportunities. Um, you know, people walking across continents or cycling around islands and looking for teammates or whatever. There's all sorts of cool stuff there. It's funny. I, I actually, um, I, I, when I was traveling in 2018 through South America, got recommended Explorers Connect. And um, for a while, with I, I, I answered the call of someone wanting to uh, cycle from, from Cairo to Cape Town. And there was, there was four of us planning to do that trip. And uh, it was late 2019. And then it got delayed and then COVID happened. But um, yeah, I can definitely advocate for that newsletter. I'll include all uh, what you just mentioned in the, in the show notes. Um, but Belinda, thank you so much for your time. This has been a, a delightful conversation. I, um, yeah, like I, like I said at the start, I, I, um, I, I the, it, what you wrote your book for is exactly uh, the, the same motivation, the same calling for why I, I started this podcast to have these conversations. So I've, I've got an awful lot from this. Yeah, it, it, John, there's a bigger, bigger, bigger network of us. There's a bigger crowd of us. It's, we're yeah. growing and we've got to just spread the word. Absolutely. Thank you for listening to Mountain Whispers. There's an awful lot of really great listening content out there, so it means a lot that you chose this one. You can find a link to Belinda's new book as well as her website uh, in the show notes, um, as well as any other uh, ways to reach her. If you enjoy this episode, please do that rate and subscribe review uh steps but more importantly i tell a friend um message them this podcast i I, that feels a lot more meaningful uh for it to to share organically than in this like semi-pernicious algorithm uh, out there Uh, these episodes uh drop every second wednesday or thursday so look out for that Uh, all the best much love